The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference, presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. The following is the Quality Assurance Guidebook Care Competency Training, Breakout Session QA2, titled Billing, Calculating Cost, Margins, Usual and Customary Rates, Balanced Billing, Toxicology, Deductibles, and Copay. The panelists are Ben Dittman and Kelly Epperson, J.D., and the moderator, John Seymour. Good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Um, I, I'm John Seymour. I work with Meridian. We're based in Minneapolis and really excited to be here moderating the Quality Assurance Billing session. I'm surprised there's not a standing room only here. Seriously. Um, but, but seriously, I think we have some very compelling uh, content and speakers um, that we'll be sharing with you. In many ways, I think the billing session captures two of the critical challenges and opportunities we, we face as providers and as an industry. Access, uh, getting patients access to the level of care they need and are entitled to in billing, getting appropriately paid for the care that we provide our patients, right? Access in billing, we gotta get paid. Um, our first speaker is Kelly Epperson from Rosecrans who will be walking us through the recent class action suit filed against UBH. And she will be uh, followed by Ben Dittman with Avea Solutions, who will be sharing uh, best practices around billing. At the end of the day, I think we all want to help and treat as many people as we can and get fairly compensated for the service that we, we provide so we can continue to effectively serve more patients. Um, get on my soapbox here a little bit, but um, as we know, we're facing an epidemic a disease that is hugely prevalent and horribly undertreated. Uh, despite the passage of parity, the parity law over 10 years ago, still only one in 10 today get the treatment they need. I'll say that again, only one in 10 get the treatment today that they need. Yes, better enforcement of parity law and inclusion of coverage for substance abuse uh, disorders as an essential benefit under the Affordable Care Act have indeed enhanced access to addiction treatment services and significantly uh, expanded the addiction treatment field. But the promise of parity, the parity law has not yet been realized. And we have a long way to go. We know better enforcement of parity law is essential to closing the treatment gap and getting patients the care they need and deserve. I think we've all, we all know research shows that treatment not only saves lives, but demonstrably reduces costs. So without further ado, uh, let me introduce Kelly Epperson. Uh, Kelly is Vice President and General Counsel at Rosecrans, based in Chicago. As General Counsel, Kelly provides comprehensive legal services to Rosecrans and its affiliates, including directing corporate activities to protect legal interests, assisting with mergers and acquisitions, analyzing novel legal issues uh, that uniquely impact behavioral health care providers, researching and influence leg legislative changes at the state and federal levels, 
and positioning Rosecrans to be legally sound, not-for-profit, so it can continue to fulfill its mission. And as important, Rosecrans was part of the UBH class action suit. Kelly. Okay, hello everyone. Thank you for having me. So I am the lawyer for Rosecrans, and what we're seeing right now in behavioral health care law, it is rapidly evolving. We're seeing a lot of laws coming out at the federal level, um, the states are taking action, and then we're also seeing movement in the court system as well. So today I'm going to be covering the Witt versus UBH case. So this was a class action uh, that was filed against United Behavioral Healthcare. It was 50,000 patients that were in the certified class. So this is a case uh, filed in federal court in California, 50,000 patients. There were 11 named plaintiffs, so they were the representatives, um, the representative plaintiffs of this lawsuit. So the 11 named plaintiffs, um, we got a little bit more detail about their claims. Essentially what happened is they were seeking residential treatment for either a substance use disorder or a mental health disorder. UBH denied coverage for that claim. They got the treatment anyways and paid out of pocket essentially. And so then they appealed the decision, the appeal was denied. There was also outpatient claims in this lawsuit. So there was a couple cases where people uh, patients sought coverage for, say, twice a week psychiatry visits, and UBH denied, saying, well, no, you only need once a week, even though your psychiatrist said twice a week, we're only going to cover once a week. So this case of 50,000 patients included both residential level of care, outpatient level of care, both mental health uh, diagnoses and substance use disorder. So technically, this was not a parity case. Even though it's in the behavioral health care sphere, they didn't actually bring their claims under the parity law, which is kind of the legal genius to me of this case. I'm not one of the lawyers, so I can, um, you know, I admired it from a distance, though, because instead of filing under parity, which would require this kind of intense, comprehensive analysis where we have to compare behavioral health care and see how it you know, compares to medical. Instead, the plaintiffs filed this lawsuit under ERISA. So ERISA is the federal law that governs employee benefits, both in uh, health benefits and retirement benefits. And so um, what happened in this case is there was a 10-day bench trial. So instead of having a jury trial, they had a bench trial before the judge. Um, evidence was presented, both documents, witness testimony, and then after this 10-day bench trial, the judge issued findings of fact and conclusions of law. So that's what made the news. Um, it was back in March, and that's kind of what all the news came out. All of a sudden, there was all the press briefings. It was because the judge finally made these findings of fact and conclusions of law after this 10-day bench trial. So we're essentially at the trial stage of this case at the first level. So like I said, the claims were brought under ERISA, which is that law that governs employee be health benefits. There were two claims. One is breach of fiduciary duty. So under ERISA, UBH, United Behavioral Health, is technically an ERISA fiduciary. Because they're a fiduciary, they owe these fiduciary duties to the class members, the beneficiaries. So if you have, you know, have health care through your employer, Either that employer or who's ever managing that plan is a fiduciary. 
because they're a fiduciary, there are certain legal duties that are now imposed on that fiduciary. One of them is to administer this health plan in the member's best interest. So if you're getting your health care, who's ever administering that plan, if it's subject to ERISA, because it's an employer-based plan, they are subject, they are a fiduciary, have to administer that plan in your best interest. It also means that they need to use the care, skill, prudence, and diligence, you know, that applies to other fiduciaries. They need to act in accordance with the documents and in instruments governing the plan. So when you get your health care, it usually comes with a summary plan description that outlines how your plan is going to be administered. How is your coverage going to be determined? So the first claim was this breach of fiduciary claim. Essentially, UBH did not administer the claims in the patient's best interest. Instead, they considered their own financial self-interest. The second claim was this arbitrary and capricious denial of benefits, essentially that they improperly denied care, they improperly denied benefits. And really, the, the crux of this case is the guidelines. So when patients seek care, the insurance company or the payer has these guidelines to determine whether they're going to cover the care or not. So in this case, the critical issue was these guidelines. And the guidelines will be called different things. I'm just going to call them the guidelines. Um, UBH called them coverage determinations. And they usually incorporated both the diagnosis and the level of care. So they have one document called a uh, coverage determination for residential treatment for major depressive disorder. And this is where they outlined all the factors to consider, and they used this coverage determination document, the guidelines, to determine whether the member would get care or not. Would they approve coverage or not? So the lawsuit did not seek coverage determinations. These plaintiffs were not asking the court whether care should have been approved or not approved. If they had done that, it could not have been a class action. Because as soon as you have all those individual determinations that are specific to the facts, you know, of that patient's presentation, it no, no longer would have been certified as a class action. And so really what was challenged in this case was these guidelines. Were they developed appropriately? Were they administered appropriately? Did they match these generally accepted standards of care? This concept of generally accepted standards of care was critical because of that summary plan description. So when these employers purchased health care for the employers, they designed the plan, right? And in those plan documents, it said, you will get coverage consistent with generally accepted standards of care. And so the court's question was, did these guidelines match that concept of generally accepted standards of care? There was a second consideration for a subgroup of the plaintiffs, plaintiffs that fell in four specific states. There were state laws that mandated the use of certain criteria. So for example, Illinois, Kentucky, uh, Illinois, Connecticut, and another state, Rhode Island, all required the use of ASAM criteria. They, the state laws said, no payers, you cannot use your own criteria. You need to use ASAM criteria. And then a fourth state, Texas, said you have to use criteria developed by the Texas Department of Insurance. Payers could not develop their own criteria. So with that in mind, the critical question that the court was asked, these guidelines that the payer came up with, that UBH came up with, did they conform to generally accepted standards of care? Did they match? That was the question. Because remember, the, the health plans in this case required that. Required that coverage determinations had to be made 
in conformity consistent with generally accepted standards of care. So to answer that question, the court first determined what were generally accepted standards of care. And for me, this was one of the most interesting parts of the case because the court essentially stepped away from legal questions and started asking treatment questions. The court articulated all these clinical principles that I'm sure you guys all know, you lived with them day in and day out, but the way the court articulated them was to me so clear. And so that's what I'll start with a little bit. So first, where did the court look to define these generally accepted standards of care? They relied on expert testimony. So the plaintiffs called two uh, physicians, treating physicians, I think they were both psychiatrists, um, as expert witnesses. They were both um, medical directors of treatment providers, and one of them also sat on the ASAM steering criteria, criteria committee and helped write the criteria. So one of these expert witnesses was actually an author of ASAM criteria. The court also looked to consensus guidelines. So it, it relied on the ASAM document, and then on the mental health side, it looked at locus criteria, all these placement criteria that are published by trade associations or medical associations. They looked to those as being evidence of generally accepted standards of care. The court also looked to the CMS manual for some principles. So the first concept the court came up with, they said the treatment should address the patient's underlying condition. It seems like common sense, right? Uh, but what the court found is that a lot of these guidelines only address acute symptomatology. They, you know, these guidelines treat the acute flare-up of the condition without treating the underlying condition. So the court said that it is a principle of treatment that services should be given to patients to treat the underlying condition, not just the flare-up of acute symptoms. The court also recognized that treatment should be delivered for co-occurring uh, disorders, co-occurring condi you know, conditions. So if someone has an SUD diagnosis, you don't just treat the SUD, you also treat the co-occurring disorders. And I know that people in this room get a lot of pushback from payers on level of care, and we hear it a lot. The patient should be treated in the lowest level of care, the, most the least restrictive setting. But there's qualifiers to that. The patient should be treated at the least restrictive level of care that is both safe and effective. So we hear it all the time that the patient can be treated at a lower level of care, that they can safely be treated in an outpatient setting. But the court recognized that the lower level of care not only needs to be safe, it needs to be just as effective. And so if you can you know, make that argument why a lower level of care would be less effective, then, then the guidelines show, or not the guidelines, but then you know, generally accepted standards of care would lead you to place that patient at a higher level of care. The, level of, the appropriate level of care is both safe and effective. And finally, if there's a discrepancy or an ambiguity about which level of care is appropriate for the patient, clinicians should err on the side of caution. And when the court you know, articulated this principle of generally accepted care, it's cited specifically to ASAM criteria. So it says right in ASAM that if there's any doubt, the patient should be treated at a higher level of care that is both safe and effective. Continuing, the court also articulated these generally accepted standards of care. 
Care is appropriate when it is needed to maintain functioning or prevent deterioration. I know a lot of times that I've heard, well, care, you know, coverage was denied because the patient's not improving. And payers look to this, you know, improvement as being a necessary pre prerequisite for coverage. Well, what the court said, again, relying on expert testimony, consensus guidelines, the court said, no, that's wrong. Treatment should be covered if it's required to maintain a patient's level of functioning or to prevent that patient from deteriorating. So again, that means as we're making these level of care determinations, if, if a patient were to discharge from residential and that would cause their condition to deteriorate, really they should be at the le residential level of care to prevent that deterioration, even if they're not improving. And again, the court came up with this concept or articulated this concept after considering all the medical evidence. So this is really a medical standard of care that the level of care that's appropriate is the one that's safe and effective, you know, that may, that may be needed to maintain functioning or prevent deterioration. The court also said that, you know, given the medical evidence, guidelines should address the unique needs of children and adolescents. So at this time of this case, the, the class action involved coverage determinations from 2011 to 2017. So that's kind of the time period the court was dealing with. At that time, UBH did not have separate guidelines for children and adolescents. So they were making decisions for children and adolescents under the same guidelines for adults. And again, you know, I know you guys know ASAM, that flies in the face of ASAM, because ASAM, you know, would require, for adults, would require a finding in each of the six dimensions. But when you look at ASAM, it says for kids and adolescents, it's a totally different standard. You only need findings in two of the six dimensions. So again, there should be separate guidelines for children and adolescents. And then finally, decisions about coverage should be individualized um, based on a multidimensional assessment of the patient. So now that the court articulated these treatment principles, these generally accepted standards of care on the clinical medical side, they then did a comparison to the guidelines. I know you guys are <laughs> excited. What do you think the conclusion was? Uh, no surprise to you guys, the court concluded that the guidelines did not match up with these generally accepted treatment principles. And so first, the guidelines emphasized acute symptoms and stabilizing crises. So if a patient came in with acute suicidal ideation, that would be enough to get residential treatment approved, but then as soon as, as that suicidal ideation decreased or resolved, uh, coverage would no longer be approved. Well, that doesn't match up with what are generally accepted standards of care because you still have that underlying condition. It might be major depressive disorder, and you might still need resident, that patient might still need residential treatment for the underlying condition of major depressive disorder. And instead, what the medical experts talked about is how, like, they used this comparison that was um, a boiling pot of water. If you only address that boiling pot of water when it boils over, you're not addressing the underlying condition, which is that there's a hot stove, right? And so treatment should be you know, covered by the payers to address the underlying treatment condition, not just the flare-up of acute symptoms. Treatment shouldn't be just for managing the crisis because otherwise you get this cycle where patients just keep coming in every time there's a flare-up in their symptoms. You know, they manage the crisis, the crisis resolves, and now coverage is denied. You never get to treating that underlying condition then. 
So the guidelines also, also ignore treatment of patients' underlying conditions. They failed to address co-occurring um, conditions. So they, if I recall from the case, there was UBH, um, the UR team would collect this information on co-occurring um, conditions. They would ask about it, but it didn't actually factor into the coverage determination. And also the guidelines for level of care did not um, address both safety and effectiveness. So the guidelines would ask, well, is IOP going to be safe for this patient? And if you answered yes, that meant the residential level of care would be denied. And that violates this generally accepted um, medical standard that treatment should be both safe and effective. And so these guidelines failed to take into account effectiveness as well. Um, and then, you know, what ASAM recognized and the other uh, consensus guidelines recognized was that clinicians should really err on the side of caution and put the patient in a higher level of care if there's any ambiguity. What the guidelines said is, well, if you're not sure, put them in the lower level of care. And that's not best practice. Um, additionally, the guidelines deviated from generally accepted standards of care because they only focused on improvement. UBH's guidelines said if the patient's not improving, we're going to deny coverage for this care. Even though that care might be required to prevent deterioration or to maintain the current level of functioning, um, the guidelines said that they would deny care if the patient wasn't improving. Additionally, the guidelines didn't consider, you know, that multidimensional assessment where you gather information in all six dimensions of ASAM. The guidelines didn't um, take that information into account. And then finally, like I mentioned, UBH did not have separate guidelines for children and adolescents um, at this time. I've since heard that um, they, are, they do have guidelines now for children and adolescents, but at the time of this case, they did not. Uh, finally, the court also noted that UBH violated the state laws by using their own criteria instead of using the state-mandated criteria. So in those three states, you're required to use ASAM criteria for all SUD um, benefit determinations, and then in Texas, you have to use the criteria issued by the Texas Department of Insurance. So now that the court made this conclusion that the guidelines did not match up with generally accepted standards of care, kind of the next part of the case was, well, what level of deference do we give UBH? Under a typical ERISA fiduciary case, you would be deferential to that fiduciary. You would kind of, they would start a little bit ahead and you would just review their decision um, under an abusive discretion case. In this case, though, um, what the court said is under established law, under ERISA, you start from that deferential standard of review, and then you can lose that deferential standard of review if there's any conflicts of interest. So the court now asked, were there any conflicts of interest that UBH was operating under? Well, the insurance industry has an inherent conflict of interest. So in this case, there were two types of plans. There were self-insured plans and fully insured plans. So a fully insured plan is where the employer just spends a certain amount of money, turns it over to UBH, they make all coverage determinations. So maybe they'll spend a million dollars on healthcare, UBH will approve or deny care, whatever's left over at the end of the day is UBH's profit, fully insured plan. There was also self-insured plans, though, where the employers would agree, we'll pay out of pocket for the claims, 
but, and then they pay a fee to UBH as the third party administrator, the TPA. So that's a self-insured plan. Uh, both of these types of plans were in uh, this class action. And what the court recognized is that is an inherent conflict of interest because essentially UBH is incentivized to deny care. If they deny care or deny coverage for care, their profits at the end of the day are higher, especially on those fully insured plans. So for the fully insured plans, again, you know, the employer is just paying out a chunk of money and then what's ever left at the end of the day is UBH's profit. So again, they're incentivized to deny care. That's just an inherent structural conflict of interest. But even on the self-insured plans, you know, they negotiate their rates as a, as a third-party administrator, a TPA, based on how much you know, that plan costs to administer. So even there, they're incentivized to maybe keep rates low, and that will help them get repeat business. So in addition to that structural conflict of interest, the court also looked at the process that UBH used to develop these guidelines to see whether the process that, the, that were used to develop the guidelines, was it insulated from financial interests or did financial interests you know, impact the decisions that were made? What the court found is that yes, the process used to develop these guidelines, to create them, to write them, was infused with financial considerations. So they got into UBH's internal structure. There's essentially a committee um, that makes these uh, guideline determinations. On that committee was clinical people who had the clinical expertise, but then there also was financial representatives. So representatives from the affordability department and the finance department sat on this guideline development committee. In addition to those financial representatives, there were also, the committee also received financial briefings. And so they would receive information like, if you change this guideline, it will cost X amount of dollars in benefit expense. They abbreviated that to Ben X. So when you hear UBH talking about Ben X, that's the benefit expense or the financial impact of their decisions. So in addition, this, this guideline, the guidelines, the level of care guidelines, they were viewed by UBH as a tool for meeting UR targets and for keeping that Ben X down. And this is all documented in committee you know, meeting minutes, in depositions of UBH representatives. They pulled emails you know, from not just the CEO, but from all of leadership. And so the court really got a detailed understanding of how these guidelines came through the committee and then would come all the way through to be used to make these coverage determinations. And UBH did not insulate that process from financial considerations. So instead of just considering what's the clinical best practice, um, they you know, considered all of these financial impacts as well. Examples of this. So the court didn't even just look at the process, they looked to see whether there was actually um, impact from the financial considerations. So the first example was transcranial magnetic stimulation. This is TMS. So it's essentially, you know, think of an MRI where they're using um, magnetic waves to stimulate the brain. Well, in that one, they're imaging the brain. For TMS, they use magnetic waves to stimulate different parts of the brain, and it, it is an FDA-approved treatment. Well, originally, UBH denied care or denied coverage for TMS because it was deemed experimental. Well, even after it was FDA approved, 
UBH would not approve coverage for TMS until they had a financial impact study done. So first they did the financial impact study, and then they decided, well, we'll approve coverage for TMS, but only on the self-insured plans where we're not paying for it. Because on the self-insured plans, it goes, the bill goes directly to the employers. On the fully insured plans, we're not going to cover it because that's out of our pocket. Well, the legal department got in involved and the legal department at UBH said, no, you can't do that. You can't discriminate between self-insured plans and fully insured plans. So eventually, um, after all of this, uh, UBH did approve coverage for TMS, but they said it has to be tightly managed because it was going to be so expensive to approve this coverage. Another example the court cited was applied behavioral analysis, which is a treatment for autism. And so the committee in this case, UBH committee, approved changing the guidelines to increase coverage for ABA. So even though the internal UBH committee approved increasing coverage for this treatment, the CEO intervened and vetoed it. The CEO said, you need to consider the business implications of guideline changes and vetoed that, even though the clinical people at UBH approved increasing coverage for ABA. So the court used those two uh, treatments as examples of how financial considerations impacted the decision making at UBH. And then the third example was the rejection of ASAM criteria. So at UBH, this internal committee that was made up of clinical people and financial representatives, everybody recommended, yes, we should use ASAM to make coverage determinations. It's best practice, it represents you know, um, generally accepted standards of care, yes, we should use ASAM. So again, even though the clinical people at UBH were recommending adoption of ASAM, it was overruled because the finance, finance department never did a Benex impact analysis. So because the finance department could never determine how much is it going to cost us to adopt ASAM criteria, it was never actually implemented despite the clinical recommendation of UBH employees. So therefore, because of those examples, because of the financial influence in the guideline development process, the court said, well, you're no longer entitled to deference. I'm, I'm now going to review your decisions with less deference and significant skepticism. So keep in mind that under ERISA, a payer is held to a standard where they have to act in the beneficiary's best interest in accordance with plan documents. And what the court uncovered through this trial and the investigation was that it, it appeared that UBH was actually acting in their own financial best interest rather than in the best interest of the patient. So therefore, there were their decisions, their determinations were reviewed with less deference, significant skepticism. So after all that, that was kind of the factual part of the case where the court looked at the medical testimony, they looked at the documents, the emails, the policies, the minutes. After all of those facts, the court came to the legal conclusions. And so what the court decided was that under the first claim, which is liability under both, uh, the first claim was breach of fiduciary duty. The court said, yes, UBH is liable under that standard. They clearly breached their uh, fiduciary duty by acting in their own financial interest instead of in the member's best interest. 
They were also liable under the, the denial of benefits claim. So that claim was all premised on these faulty guidelines. So essentially they said, UBH improperly adjudicated the coverage determination because they were relying on these faulty guidelines. So because the guidelines were faulty, therefore it was an arbitrary and capricious denial of benefits. So ultimately the court concluded that the guidelines were unreasonable and did not reflect generally accepted standards of care and that UBH did deny coverage based on these faulty guidelines. So again, the court is not making coverage determinations. It didn't say like, well, yes, this care for this residential treatment in March 2012 should have been approved. It can't make that determination because this was certified as a class action. So because it's a class action, it's got to take that higher level view of more the process, the guidelines in general. And so it, the court determined that the guidelines were faulty and shouldn't have been used. It has not made any determinations on actual coverage and what should have, whether the claim should have been approved. We have not gotten to remedies yet in the case. So like I said, this is just at the trial level of the case. Um, we've only conducted the bench trial. So potential remedies though, that the plaintiffs have talked about is they want an injunction that stops UBH from using these guidelines. They also want an order that requires UBH to develop new guidelines that are consistent with generally accepted standards of care. Then they would ask that all these claims that were denied under the guidelines be re reprocessed. There was a previous summary judgment motion. At one point, the plaintiffs did ask for like a monetary penalty. The court has denied that request for a monetary um, remedy. Their theory was based on like disgorgement of improper profits. Um, the court said, no, we're not gonna do that. There's no way to calculate like how much they made from these faulty guidelines. There's no punitive damages under ERISA. So it's not like UBH is gonna get slapped with a huge fine. I think what we're gonna see instead is these remedies that require them to stop using bad guidelines and write new guidelines, and then finally to reprocess claims. So I think you know, those remedies could certainly fall fat, flat when I think of you know, some of the families that when they get coverage denials, a lot of times they just leave treatment. So this case is not gonna help any of those families. Now the families that did have a coverage denial and they stayed in treatment and just paid out of pocket, uh, those families could see some relief, see their claim reprocessed and they might get coverage approved after the fact. But that is um, the next phase of this case where the court will start talking about remedies. After that, I think we can certainly expect an appeal um, up to the next level. So as far as what this case means for providers, I think that's still a little bit um, to be determined. I think in reading the case for me, um, personally, a lot of it kind of confirmed what we already knew, but we didn't know that some of the conduct was maybe this egregious. I think we all knew that it was really hard to get coverage approved, that these guidelines didn't always match up with you know, clinical best practice. So what I would expect to see going forward, you know, I certainly think there will be more attention paid uh, to the state laws that require, that mandate the use of uh, certain criteria. 
So if you live in those states that have laws that require the use of ASAM criteria or another criteria, that is what the payers should be using. And then I think we will see payers, you know, consider their guidelines and maybe start changing some of the guidelines to match up with this case. It certainly is not mandated to yet. This case doesn't have any kind of precedential value at this point. It's just a federal district court case that's specific to, you know, these claims against UBH. But I do think it has some persuasive authority, even if it doesn't have precedential authority. So, I, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how our, you know, as we're having these conversations with the payers, how they're going to respond to this case and see if they're going to go back to the board and kind of reevaluate uh, their guidelines, not only to make sure that their guidelines are consistent with generally accepted standards of care, but also that their guideline process is consistent with their fiduciary duties under federal law. Well, this is what I heard, Kelly. I don't know. Um, it, I took some notes. Got the UBH guidelines didn't align with generally accepted standards uh, of care. They were incented uh, to deny care. Uh, guidelines used to guide care considerations and deny benefits that patients are entitled to. Ultimately, to deny patients the level of care they need. Um, so I think, you know, again, you know, parity without teeth, we don't get the access, right? And what we wanted to do was, I know there was a lot of discussion, is open it up to some questions. I know I have some questions um, for Kelly, just as far as, I think for, for, for me, you know, as a working at a provider, as an industry, how do we kind of take this case we know we want parity, we want teeth. I mean, I, there's lots of different instances where, you know, I, I'm looking at, okay, how do we fight for longer lengths of stay? Because we know uh, treatment of longer duration uh, has better outcomes, you know? And, and so given the case and the findings, it seems like clearly, a payer is kind of thwarting that effort. So I guess without, I want to just open it up to questions. Anybody have questions? Yes. conflict of interest as well. We benefit when the patient gets more care. I think what's different though is we're not held to the same fiduciary standard. And so because we don't have that fiduciary standard, I don't know that that conflict of interest comes into play in the same way legally. Um, we wouldn't really be examined in this, this sphere um, because we're just trying to do what's best for the client or for the patient, but I think that's where outcome data, you know, is so important because right now, um, in talking to our medical team, we haven't been able to really point to like one study that says, you know, 30 days is better than, four, or 45 days is better than 30 days and six months of continuing care is better than five months of continuing care. So I think that would help support our arguments on why patients need 
a long stay. And I think as long as we're relying on like the clinical guidelines that are published by these associations, that helps diffuse some of that conflict of interest. And I think what I saw in this case is there was this set of like generally accepted principles that everybody agreed on in the medical community and UBH was over here. And I think as long as the providers are using those tools like ASAM, the CA locus, the locus criteria, that helps showing that no, we're not just acting for our own best interest. We're really considering the patient's interest here because here's all the factors we relied on. We relied on ASAM criteria. All of those show credibility you know, to the provider decision and um, I think deflects some of that conflict of interest. Would it be possible that these same understandings would apply to other third payers such as CMS or mm. um, states? We're seeing a lot of pressure actually from CMS on our state to reduce lengths of stay. And so is there a fiduciary responsibility mm -hmm. that they have? Yeah, so that's one of my next questions legally is how does this apply to like a Medicaid payer? And I don't know the answer to that yet because keep in mind, you know, a pivotal uh, part of this case was that summary plan description. So it was the summary plan description where it said you will have coverage based on these generally accepted standards of care. So my question as a lawyer is like, what is the Medicare Medicaid equivalent to that? Because I don't, you know, it's not like they have a summary plan description. So I'm gonna go do some legal research in like the contracts between, you know, the state Medicaid authority and the Medicaid MCOs. How are they supposed to administer the care? Are they supposed to approve care consistent with generally accepted standards of care? Then I think you have a really good argument that this case applies and then they need to redo their coverage determinations. And so I think it will be some state-specific, you know, determinations because states have so much control over their Medicaid program. But if you can get to that kind of initial piece that they have to administer care and make coverage determinations consistent with generally accepted treatment principles, then absolutely this case has persuasive authority for you. <laughs> And then um, the Department of Insurance can then uh, fine the insurer if they do not comply with their order. In other words, they can issue an order to show cause mm -hmm. and say, tell us why we shouldn't fine you $10,000 or a million dollars a day mm -hmm. for life continuing this violation. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I can see it, unless somebody can mm -hmm. has some influence in Washington to change ERISA that would allow punitive damages. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point of one avenue to, um, to advocate for behavioral health care patients is through class action lawsuits. But that's only one avenue. We've seen a lot of progress with like attorney generals acting. So I think that's another resource to mobilize. And I think the state um, agencies that have enforcement authority, they also need to be mobilized. And this is a great case to educate them on why there's so many coverage like denials and why this is so important. Because I think, you know, when I've talked to other providers, one of the number one issues that everybody's talking about is these medical necessity denials. 
it is so hard to get care approved under the criteria they're using. And I think this case is a great way to educate those uh, regulators, those enforcement agencies on why it's so critical. And I would certainly point to like what the New York AG's office found when they did their investigation is that denials on the mental health side I think were six times higher than on the medical side. And then uh, SUD treatment was denied at a 10 times higher than medical um, denials. And it's really once, that's a traditional parity case where you compare like, you know, mental health SUD treatment and compare it to medical. That's still another avenue, but you really need like a government agency that has that kind of subpoena power to be able to get both sides of the equation and do that comparison. So I think, you know, what I would say to you and what I, you know, I certainly agree, there is more than one way to kind of attack this problem and to get progress so that our patients can get the care they need. Not that was discussed at all. This was all about UBH as either the fully insured plan or as a TPA for a self-insured plan. I think, no, I agree with you. I think um, having different criteria I would view as more of a first step. It would certainly be better to have ASAM criteria than whatever criteria, you know, the payer cooked up. Um, but then the next step will be even under ASAM there's still a lot of subjectivity. And I think there is still room under ASAM criteria to deny care that's medically necessary. And so I think that's where we as a field, you know, it's a hard problem. I don't have any solutions for you, but I think that's where, you know, we need to take a strategic approach with the payers to say, like, you know, with outcomes, a 45-day length of stay results in better outcomes. So please approve 45-day length of care. Or you need six months that includes residential and then IOP and then continuing care. You know, that's where I see this field going, you know, where we really come to those generally accepted treatment principles on here's how you would treat substance use disorder. And I, and I was just going to add that I think outcomes, we, we've got to get there as an industry, and I think that's how we push back, quite frankly, because I think, I mean, research shows that, I mean, NIH has published reports around 12 to 1 ROI. So we know people going, it's cheaper to send somebody to treatment than not and you get reduction beyond saving lives of reduced health care costs, criminal justice costs, and there's research out there that demonstrates that. But I think the challenge, we've tried to partner with some of the big payers to you know, do some longitudinal studies, and of course they've kind of balked at that, but I think we gotta get to that point where we're demonstrating the outcomes and the impact on what we do. Another thing. Another thing that I'd like to mention is um, how many people out here are actually going through when they believe that their patient needs to stay in an RTC bed rather than being dropped down 
actually submitting the claim and going through the denial process. That's actually great to see um, because that, that's something that needs to be tracked and monitored and we as an industry need to be using that data and, and fighting the insurance companies. Um, right now, many people just turn around and use a lower authorized, an authorized day. That does a couple things. One is the insurance company doesn't know that you're fighting it. Um, the other part is on the back end when they're doing math on the, at the insurance company and look at, at lengths of stay, they're seeing that people are getting treated those PHP days when actually you're delivering RTC and over-delivering care. Another part too is, is, is that's in certain states illegal. You're delivering non-authorized care. So that's something as, a, as an industry, if we can get that information together, share that information and, and really start presenting it, um, we kind of need to step up as well. I'd actually have to defer to an attorney for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. I don't know their corporate structure well, but I know that it kind of goes United Healthcare, United Behavioral Healthcare, and then Optum's a part of that, but I couldn't give you specifics on how they're legally related. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Talk to your state because it's going to depend on what type of plan it is. So if it's an employer-based plan that's subject to ERISA, you're going to go to the Department of Labor, EBSA, and I can't think of what that stands for, employee benefit something assistance maybe. So it's Department of Labor, EBSA, they'll have a regional office. So that's if it's an employer-based plan. If it's a marketplace plan, you would go to your state Department of Insurance. If it is a Medicaid plan, you're gonna to go to your state Medicaid authority. And so as you can see, this is the problem with parity. As jurisdiction was split up between not just multiple agencies, but state and federal agencies. So I know our state Department of Insurance has said we only have jurisdiction over 22% of plans. So we'll help you with those 22% of plans, but we can't do anything with the employer-based plans. You have to go to DOL. So um, there's a couple really good websites um, where you can just go in and put in a couple questions and they'll direct you to the right authority. Um, I can, if you get my card after, I'll just try and find that website and track it down. So there are a couple websites that will filter patients to the right authority to file a complaint with. I think that's also where I see the attorney generals fitting in because they have broader enforcement power. And so they can get at more information on both the uh, Medicaid side and the commercial side. So I would really partner with your state AGs to see if they're interested in doing some enforcement action. And I would point them to the New York AG's office as a model for how to act in this, you know, and get these really, these important settlements. Any more questions? Yes, sir.
I think they'd still be subject to ERISA. Um, I would have to defer. Um, it kind of depends on the specific facts, but based on what you're describing, I'd say it's still an ERISA-governed plan. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge, too, with, you know, as a provider, someone comes in and they just give us a Blue Cross Blue Shield card. Well, you don't know if it's a marketplace plan under state jurisdiction, an ERISA plan, you know, under federal jurisdiction. Um, it can be really challenging to know where to turn to and who can assist you. And so I think that's one of the challenges with parity that we have to address moving forward. Yes. Um, I don't know if you can do this, but I had a disagreement with somebody <laughs> earlier, so I want to make sure that this is right what I'm saying, but it has nothing to do with that. But if your provider, okay, your, your place is a provider for, let's say, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and you bill the senior code, and let's say they allow $100 for it, and they, and they pay it, you cannot bill the patient over that amount for extra if you don't agree that the insurance company didn't allow enough. Didn't allow enough. Is it a copay amount or a deductible? Yeah, to me that sounds like a balanced billing issue. And is it an in network or out of network plan? Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot of nuances that we're asking. So, like, yeah. 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 So I'll give you the general rule. I can't speak to the specific situation, but generally you have a contract. If you're in network, you have a contract with that payer. That contract will say you cannot bill the member for any other um, costs other than their copay and deductible or any coinsurance amount. And if you are billing the patient for some amount that doesn't fall in one of those categories, copay, coinsurance, or deductible, that would be considered like a balanced billing type situation, which is probably a breach of contract. It's probably not a law, it's more of a breach of contract issue. Correct, and so on the out-of-network side, it's different. Mm -hmm. um, the other part too is, is there's every plan has nuances, so even if, even if a patient comes in, for instance, on, on an in-network plan and wants to pay cash, your contract may require you to bill that, mm. that client. Um, they also, if you decide to discount a, a cash rate for that client, there's a, some of them even have a most favoritation clause that can impact your rate with that client, with that insurance company as well. So mm -hmm. it's really situational based on, on plan and if it's in-network and out-of-network. Can I ask you a question? Or, uh, <laughs> uh, when, you, when you initially submitted documentation to the Supreme Court about who you need to practice claims, did they ever give you a reason for why, like, or a medical record reason prior mm -hmm. to the medical necessity of the medical process? Yeah, I wasn't actually one of the attorneys handling this case. I've just been admiring it from afar. Um, but what I can tell you is that based on the court's summary, they did exhaust their, their kind of appeal right. And so they had the initial denial, and then I think it went to peer review, and then there was the formal appeal afterwards, which I'm assuming was more of like a medical record submission type appeal. And so they did exhaust those kind of administrative remedies before being allowed in the class action.
Yeah. But they never went to like an independent review and had an outside physician because a lot of times if you do that IRO with the independent physician, that's going to be binding and you would then lose your right of action against the payer. Correct. Yep. Has anybody approached a provider to try to get network and been told they're closed? Yes. <laughs> and I guess my question I'd ask Kelly is, is there anything we can do as providers to push back uh, around this being quote unquote closed based on parity? Yeah, so this would be called like a network ad adequacy issue. Um, so if you're being told that the network is closed, I think some states have been taking action on defining what is you know, an appropriate network and how many providers you should have in network. So that's one kind of legal avenue to look at is if you have any state laws on network ad adequacy or if you should be lobbying to get those passed. Option two would be more of a traditional parity analysis because that parity analysis does apply to network admission. Now to do that parity analysis, again, it's a comparison. So you have to compare the way behavioral health care providers are treated and compare it to your medical surgical providers. So, and that's where it gets really hard and detailed because who do you compare us to? Are, you know, as residential facilities, do you just look at how many residential facilities there are versus how many I don't know, skilled nursing facilities, or do we look like a hospital? You know, that's where it gets kind of hard to do that comparison because behavioral health care is different. Um, but those are the questions I would start asking is like, well, what is the process to get in network if you were a medical surgical provider? And then see if the answer you get is different than the process you're getting um, as a behavioral health treatment provider. And that's really going to be, you know, the kind of the crucial element is that comparison between the process. And I would probably, you know, I don't know, I'm thinking about it off the top of my head. I'd probably compare the process more. What are the steps to get admitted to the network and start there? And then maybe your next parity argument would be like just a comparison of numbers to see how many providers do you have on the med surge side versus how many providers do you have on the behavioral health, health network side. Okay, one last and then I think you'll be lingering a little bit maybe yes. they can okay yeah yeah mm. yeah all right well thank you that great discussion um, thank you Kelly so we're going to trans, trans, transition to what you've all been waiting for, right? Billing, right? Um, you know, I, I think our existence increasingly depends on getting reimbursed by payers, yet many of us struggle to keep up. There's been lots of changes um, uh, in our field on the federal and local level, um, and it, it, it varies by state, by county by city, um, it seems. Uh, so it's important that we understand the regulatory environment and understanding uh, policy language when billing insurance. To help us, Ben Dittman will be walking us through best practices. Uh, ben is uh, founder and CEO of Avea Solutions based in Portland, Oregon. Did I say Oregon? Is that right? Okay. Um, Avea Solutions is focused on bringing leading edge revenue cycle management technology, technology specifically to addiction treatment 
eating disorder treatment in behavioral health facilities. Avea minimizes headaches and maximizes human capital efficiency and earnings. All in one fully integrated solution. Before founding Avea, Ben spent 15 plus years in banking, system design, and business process consulting. Ben is also a member of Forbes Technology Council. Ben. All right. Well, billing's not the, the most exciting subject out there, so um, thanks, for, thanks for sticking around. Uh, first of all, I'm not a billing expert. Uh, can I get a show of hands of people who think that they are out there? Uh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so I would probably defer some of these questions or I'll phone a friend. Um, I really look at systems, I look at how information is processed, I look at trends in data, and, um, and we saw a need in behavioral health, so we built a system. Uh, I was asked to, to talk about um, some of these subjects with the new quality assurance guide guidebook, um, section six that they draft, they put out as a draft. Um, what I'm excited about is, is, is I feel like the industry as a whole right now really needs to get together and start putting together some resources for each other. Uh, billing is not easy, it's not black and white. Um, data is what we're going to need to ultimately go up against the payers and, uh, and now is the time to start working together through, through these different processes. So I'm going to start off, um, uh, so we're going to go through six different topics, uh, calculating the cost of service, reasonable billing margins, um, usual customary and reasonable rates, balance bill billing and receiving, toxicology, and deductible and co-pays. Uh, I anticipate over the next couple of years this, uh, this guide getting um, much more detail, quite a bit of conversation around it, and, and hopefully together as a group we can come up with, uh, with a better guide, I mean continue to improve the guidebook that's out there. Um, so why did Nate, uh, National Addiction of <laughs> NAATP members uh, um, put this together. 60% of the revenue right now is a result of insurance. Um, one of the things too is, is, is what we'll see is a bigger focus in this industry on collecting patient responsibility as well. And so that's really going to be part of the, the balance billing and receiving piece uh, going forward. Um, so number one, calculating cost of service. We rep represent about 500 facilities right now billing, and I, I went out and I, I asked quite a few of the facilities, how do they price? What, how do they dis establish their rate of service? And, and a lot of them are, are kind of saying, we, we pick a price because that's what the market demands, or that's what our competition um, has, but really backing into what is your cost of service? So how much does a... Um, a typical bed cost. How many people in this room can actually say what uh, a day of PHP costs their organization? Okay. Um, how many of those people can actually say at a different capacity that's based on census, we know that that, what that bed costs. So as you can see, that's, that's something that we really need to be looking at. And, and in order to be able to say in the next section, what do we want from a margin standpoint? Um, this also helps a lot in insurance negotiation. So 
how am I uh, how am I delivering a day of PHP? What are the costs in terms of staffing? What are the costs in terms of the facility? What are the admin? What are the insurance? What are the marketing costs? All that adds, adds up to a unit of care. And if you're running at 100%, that cost is going to be different than if you're running at 50%. So having a model that allows you to look at, at each bed, um, what that, that census, is, census is on a per day basis and how much it's costing you is important. It's a really important thing also when you go into the insurance companies to say, you're right now pricing this at, at something that's not affordable. And right now we see a lot of the insurance companies are pricing or trying to put out contracts that, that simply you can't provide the level of care that you need. Um, so it's an education piece. One thing I also notice is that nobody ever thinks about costs increase over time. And a lot of these insurance companies, in fact, have risers in them. And if you're negotiating properly, you should be calculating the cost of insure, I mean, inflation over time and, and changes in, in staffing. Um, I would bet that probably 80% of the network groups that we work with don't adjust their cost on a on a year-to-year -year basis when it's built into their contract that they can do it. So that's something to to go back if you do have in-network contracts, see if there's risers built into it, and uh, and and start start holding the the payers accountable for what they um, they contracted with you to pay. Um, does everybody understand kind of the capacity uh, piece and how that's important to understand? So once you actually understand what your cost of service is, the next piece is, is, is understanding what you should be able to make from a profit on that. So, you know, if you're, if you're delivering a point of care cut that costs $5 and charging $2,000, that's an extremely high uh, margin versus an RTC bed that costs $500, but you're, you're able to get $800 from, from a private pay client or, or an insurance company. So, so reasonable rates, it's, it's interesting. We've seen actually a lot of the rates that get charged to the insurance companies drop in terms of these egregious amounts that were, were being billed out. Um, we're starting to see kind of more banding um, because insurance companies will start to flag, uh, flag providers when they see these astronomical rates. A lot, of the, a lot of providers were going out and putting extremely high rates in the anticipation that they'd get a plan that comes back and and pays at 80% of bill charges. Um, that's being analyzed now. Um, also, as we look at in, in one of the next guidelines about um, properly going after patient responsibility, um, those, those high rates, you're then responsible to, to pass that on to the client. And, and there's gonna be more and more scrutiny on, on how that happens and with surprise billing laws, making sure that that's disclosed on the front end. Um, the uh, um, reasonable margins, you know, I've asked a handful of people about what do they expect from a re reasonable margin in running a business in this industry. Um, you know, the, the 20 to 60% is, is kind of a lot across the board of what I'm hearing, um, depending on growth and size and, and where you are. But, but the days of, you know, 300% margins is, is over. And, uh, and I think everybody needs to think about that in terms of, of what's a reasonable margin, how do you structure a business, how do you, how do you price accordingly, uh, and how do you justify those prices. So, um, so uh, payment by payers. Um, the other part that you have to anticipate is, is when you're going after the, 
the insurance claims there's an additional cost. So if you have a private pay client, often they'll pay that upfront. You don't have to hire a billing team. Um, you get that money right away. Um, insurance companies, you know, there's an incredible amount of effort to go after those claims, and there's an additional cost around that. So you need to be thinking about what's what's the rate of collection, um, how much does it cost? You know, you're spending money on a billing company, you're spending money on internal teams. Um, so there's there's a different cost when you're starting to play with the uh, with insurance. Um, the the other part is is as you track that, also use that when you're negotiating with them. Um, tell them that when they're not paying promptly, you know that's costing you money. The amount of times that you have to go through the denial process, that's raising your costs. Um, the more data you can collect, the better armed you will you'll be. Um, how many people here actually appeal claims? That's good to see. Uh, a lot of people just, just submit a claim, hope it gets paid, and move on. And so um, making sure that you understand the cost of appealing, your success rate, uh, that's, that's important. That's all going to deal into, into the mar your margins of your business. Um, and, uh, and really, the biggest thing is, is, is you know, knowing the incremental costs of appeals or collections. Um, it may cost you more on the staffing side, but make sure that you're going to get the ROI on the back end uh, for, the, for those claims. Um, other kind of helpful hints. I talked to a handful of uh, billing companies and, and providers out there. Uh, don't start your, your contracting process at the beginning of January. Um, start early on in the year. Um, so so start, pro start contracting process October or before. Um, understand payer stratification within markets. So this kind of goes back to you know, being denied by a payer. Um, also knowing if, if you're the, the primary resource in a, in a market, there's a value to that. So um, really understanding your payer market, um, who's in network, who's in network with different providers from, from a competition standpoint um, is important. Um, other things that I don't know if people know about is depending on how you work with the payers, uh, you can get actually different statuses. So there's a, uh, a level of excellence that, that certain payers will say, okay, we're going to put you in our in a certified program or a platinum pr program, um, inviting the payers out on site to see your program, uh, you can actually get automatically approved days. For instance, the, the United Platinum status, um, facilities will get 20 plus days right away on intake. So if you can, if you can present the data on the front end, really work with the payers and negotiate, um, you can get into some of their, their uh, kind of platinum programs, and, and uh, if you work with it, it, it actually takes the authorization process and makes it relatively simple. Um, usual customer and reasonable rates. Uh, so this is where I think, again, we also as an industry need to pull data and understand in different areas. Usual and customary rates are what the insurance companies determine are what they should be paying from an allowable standpoint for that service. Um, we actually, we see allowables come in across the board and, and there's often no rhyme or reason to it. Um, tracking by patient, tracking by um, level of care, um, when you start to see differences greater than 20%, 15%, some threshold, start going back to the payers and appealing it. 
Um, I talked to one of our uh, one of our customers, and and they were getting an 80% success rate on those uh, those claims getting reprocessed. So. If, if you start seeing trends in your data change where that allowable is not getting paid or they paid a certain allowable for five claims and the sixth is different, um, you should be looking at that. Um, you should be pulling those exceptions out and you should be making, uh, making a case to get those claims reprocessed. Um, there's there's kind of two things. The, the insurance companies, they their systems are extremely buggy and they don't have a, they don't necessarily want to fix that process, and uh, and then some of these things they cycle through and and uh, and pay at different rates to see what what people react to. So you really have to keep an eye on the data and and uh, and hold them accountable because they're not going to turn around and just go find an error and cut you a check. Um, balance billing and receiving. So. Um, can I get a show of hands of who understands the balance billing concept? Okay. Um, so I'll kind of go through that real quick. So you've got in-network and out-of-network payers. Um, balance billing uh, is the, the responsibility of, of the patient. On an in-network contract, depending on that contract, um, you're supposed to, you have guidelines on what you can collect from that patient. In an out-of-network um, contract, um, the, the remainder of what you bill, um, you need to show collections effort to go after that, uh, after that patient responsibility piece. Um, in the past, there's been a handful of people that have done hardship letters, uh, notified people three times. Um, we're seeing a lot more scrutiny around um, balance billing. Um, we're also at the same time where there's scrutiny on making sure that you collect on uh, patient responsibility. You need to be aware of the safe harbor, excuse me, um, the surprise billing laws that are coming into effect. So if you're going to bill out somebody for, for a day of residential treatment at $3,000 and the insurance company is going to allow 1,800 of it and, and you need to go collect the 1,200 from the patient, you need to be on the front end turning around and, and uh, um, disclosing to the patients that, that they're going to be receiving these invoices. Um, and so we'll start, start to see more of that, and I'm sure Kelly's got quite a bit of information <laughs> about that on a state-by-state on a state level. Um, but, but it's really establishing the clear and communication, clear and consistent communication with the patient from the front end. Um, and, uh, and then typically with, with in-network um, contracts, uh, you have your, your normal rate that you send out, your rack rate that's, or charge master rate that you send out to the insurance companies. Um, you've negotiated a lower rate in network. Uh, then what you basically need to do is, is you can't go after that difference. Um, that's, uh, um, that's part of the contract, and so you really need to know your, uh, what each contract says and how you need to be approaching, approaching the, the patient responsibility piece. Um, toxicology, so there's, there's a handful of resources out there in the guidebook. There's some links to, to toxicology billing. This has been um, a consistent topic. If there's anybody that has questions about this, see me, and I'll point you in, in the direction of somebody who knows quite a bit more than me about this. Um, but, but we actually have seen a huge, I mean, a, a reduction in, uh, in the toxicology bill, billing and egregious toxicology billing. 
Um, if, you're, if you're still sending out extremely high charges for, for toxicology, um, chances are you're, you're flagging yourself uh, in the payer's eyes and, and uh, um, you know, this kind of goes back to reasonable, reasonable margins, you know. What, what, are, what service are you providing and, and what's a re reasonable margin um, to profit on? And uh, um, deductibles and copays. So um, collecting uh, deductibles, collecting copays, how you have these processes in your, within your organization are extremely important. Um, there's, there's a huge shift now in, in, again, in going after patient responsibility. You're gonna see most people in the industry are starting to shift to, to collect this, uh, both deductibles and copays. Um, so make sure you have policies in place, they're consistent. Um, payment plans, um, we've actually talked to a handful of people and said that, that payment plans, um, they've put in, payment, in place payment plans and it's actually added a lot more value to the client. The client feels like the fact that they're contributing to their care and putting, um, even if it's a small payment amount, um, they start to value it differently. Uh, people don't necessarily value it's free. And so um, there's many systems out there that make this, this process automated. Um, I'm happy to, to, to give you re uh, referrals to those platforms, um, but, but start implementing payment plans if people can't, can't afford this uh, on the front end and, uh, and really you're gonna start to see this, this throughout the industry as a, as a big theme. Any questions about the guidelines? A goal, so I'm gonna repeat the question. Is there a gold standard for following up with uh, patient collections? Um, there's, to be honest, there isn't that I'm aware of. Um, I think that that's something that would be very useful for everybody. Um, Kelly, do you have any? Yeah, and, and those, um, the, so we've seen a lot of scrutiny on the hardship letters that, that were um, in place and, and people getting audited around those, and then also the collection attempts. Um, you know, and that kind of also goes with the surprise billing laws. So if, if all of a sudden um, people are going out and balance billing uh, and, and that dollar amount's real high and the patient was never aware of that, um, even though they're not paying it, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot more scrutiny around that. So yes, it, there, in terms of patient collections, there are rules around you, sh you need to make three good of faith efforts to, to collect on that amount. Anything else? In terms of, say that again, sorry. No. Um, I haven't, no. Um. Yeah. 
Yep. So, so good questions. Usual and customary rates, um, they vary by region, and uh, are the insurance companies obligated to give you those fees? Um, I'm not aware that they're obligated to give you that information. Um, I could be wrong. Uh, I know that there's been some changes, uh, or there's there's work to get that disclosed, and there's been there's been lawsuits in the past around some of the database systems uh, in Gen X, and and how some of that has uh, been detrimental. Um, one of the things that I I can say is is that we can share information as long as it's not collusion. So um, making sure that we have certain kind of banding and things that aren't uh, individually identifiable. Um, a good source too is, is is if you can see what's happened within your own claims, you can start to see if things are consistent. Um, any any other comments on? Yeah. I don't oh. think they're very transparent. Okay. <laughs> Awesome. Um, one thing too that's interesting is is, is we have, uh, from a claim standpoint, I don't know if people know, but but there's a billed charges amount that isn't what you expect to get paid on that claim. And, and people submit, some people who are in network will submit their in network rate on that claim form. And so if, if your rack rate for a day of residential treatment is $1,400, but you have a $1,000 uh, contract with BCBS. Um, some people are out there saying we only should bill BCBS a thousand dollars. You really should be billing BCBS the the top rack rate at fourteen hundred dollars um, for a couple reasons. One is is that's what what you're supposed to be doing, but you're also impacting the usual and customary rates because they use those bill charges as they establish that for a certain region. So if you're putting those in low, you're actually hurting yourself as an industry saying these are lower uh, than the retail rates that are out there. So. Um, That's a good question. Uh, and I, I could find resources and consultants out there that, that are experts in this. Um, but they should have a clear and consistent policy that that goes through why they would why they wouldn't collect it. Um, did they did they put somebody on a payment plan? Why didn't they put somebody on a payment plan to collect that? Um, there's there's just so many nuances to that. So there's a handful of great consultants that I'd be happy to uh, put you in contact with that can can help you through that process. Uh, stat statue of limitations around recoupments.
there's there's also some some legislation or, or laws around um, the recoupment and recouping against a different patient or a different claim. So that's also something to look into that um, a lot of insurance companies will come back with a recoupment and recoup from a different patient um, and you really need to be uh, understanding if they can do that um, and uh, and there's there's some attorneys right now that I know are fighting a handful of the big insurance companies around that. That's a good, that's another good question. Um, oh, so uh, medical, medical director, uh, medical practitioner um, asking, is there any advice on being able to, to strengthen and get more success in peer-to-peer -peer reviews? Um, I am not a, an expert in that, and, and same thing. I think that there's some people here that that uh, we could put you in contact with that that are. Um, I think data is one of those things that makes sure that you you track data. Um, you know, I, I think really getting into as an industry, we need to be thinking about that appeals process and how do we how do we build an easy process to to go appeal to insurance companies. Um, fight them and, and track the data as a group so that we can we can get them to uh, um, overturn some of these claims. Brianna? That's a great question. So the question was, um, what can treatment centers do to, to prepare for value-based reimbursement? Um, I think really listening to some of the different uh, insurers and and kind of follow some of the pilots that are happening in different areas. So they're looking for organizations that have a continuum of care. Um, they're looking for, um, I mean, definitely outcome measurement, um, making sure that you have data that says, okay, this is what we're providing and it, and it leads to this. Um, the more information that you have around what actual treatment's being provided, I mean, one of the things that we see all the time is, is people deliver RTC but then bill out at a lower level of care. And, and when you run your numbers, are you running on what you've billed or what you've actually delivered? Um, what's your medical record look like? Because is it matching what's, what you're actually billing the insurance companies? Um, and and when you go to, to explain that and, and stand up in front of the, the organization saying, this is what we do and this is the success of it and why. Um, but, but it's really a data, uh, to me I believe it's a data, understanding where you are, how you can impact the clients and, and then outcome measurement. Okay. Thank you very, very much. Bye. So, Thank you, Kelly and Ben. I, I think I heard there are kind of two big things. It's collect and amass data and outcomes. And I think for me, I think we, or all of us, it's, it's going to take a united front to kind of get after and fight for access and getting reimbursed for the services we provide. But thanks, everybody. Um, I think you all will be here. But thanks, Kelly and Ben.